Support for Essential Tremors comes from the Big Ears Festival, celebrating 10 years with Los Lobos, Bill Frizzell, Edgar Meyer, and John Zorn. March 30th through April 2nd in Knoxville. BigEarsFestival.org. This episode is brought to you by Atomic Books. Atomic is an independent bookstore full of objects made of paper, vinyl, plastic, and various other actual materials at the edge of time. Specializing in literary comics, small press, art books, and great regional beer at 8 Bar in the back of the store. Come to 3620 Falls Road in Hamden or go to AtomicBooks.com. Atomic Books, literary finds for mutated minds. I find it so difficult to describe his music because it's not, it's not just guitar playing. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, something, it's something more than that. And it always feels like a, a kind of geological event, like a volcano exploding or, <laughs> or uh, you know, a, uh, an earthquake. This is Essential Tremors. I'm Lee Gardner. I'm Matt Byers. The idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are. We're not looking for favorite songs, necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them. Songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives, or their lives in general. Guitarist Bill Orcutt's music could be described in a lot of ways, most of them perceived by the word avant. Within everything he does, however, is, at a minimum, a kernel of a pop song, which he has then deconstructed, dismembered, and destroyed in the process of creating it or interpreting it. Reaching back over 30 years, his body of work has always been imbued with a complete absence of self-consciousness, as he connects directly with whatever is playing through him, evidenced by the just-below-the-surface vocalizations that come out of him as he plays. The first song Orcutt chose as being formative for him was Machine Gun by Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix was my uh, starting point, my entry into uh, uh, guitar and, and, and becoming a real music fan, not just a casual listener. And, uh, you know, it's, he's also probably the person that I've listened to the most over the years. 
Um, my first real guitar was a Stratocaster because that's what he played. Um, and so just growing up, my friends and I would uh, hang out and listen to his records. Um, and uh, I was born too late in 1962 to really, unless my parents had taken me to Woodstock when I was eight, uh, to see him live. But, uh, you know, there was a Hendrix Midnight Movie <laughs> Uh, documentary that I saw several times, uh, and it was uh, it was always just very compelling for me. Um, I don't remember exactly why it was that I became, uh, as a teenager, uh, uh, so obsessed with his music. Um, I, it, I'm sure it didn't. You know what I'm getting out of it now after. 40 years of playing the guitar. I'm sure I, I didn't, wasn't the same thing that's connect uh, that I was connecting with it at age 15. But, um, so maybe it was, you know, he's very charismatic. So probably that was enough to make me, to draw me in initially. Um, you know, maybe it was his Tashiki. I don't know. But, uh, at some point, uh, you know, the focus for me became the music and, uh, over the years, I was listening to all kinds of music, you know, and I got, I really got into punk and I love the Ramones and, you know, Rockets to Russia was a giant record for me, but, uh, but I always continued listening to Hendrix. And, uh, I remember after, uh, you know, after I, I, I remember after, you know, I was listening to a lot of punk and, and jazz and I remember selling all my Led Zeppelin records, uh, that I later bought back. But, uh, I never sold my Hendrix records. These always, in my mind, uh, somehow has always transcended anything to do with style or, or genre. But uh, the song "Machine Gun" uh, and this, the one, the record—I don't know if I specified which recording—but I really love uh, the Band of Gypsies version. There's actually. There's, there's a lot of different recordings. He never recorded in the studio, so there's there's, there's a lot of live recordings. And uh, uh, there's one take that I think is only on Band of Gypsies. I also have the Live at the Fillmore, which has two other takes, but I, which I believe are different. Anyway, the Band of Gypsies version is the one that I, I, I love uh, the most. Um, I, I like all his slow blues, um, especially you know, the kind of monochord one, one chord or like an ostinato, you know, based, uh, blues without, without chord changes, um, like here, my train of comment. Uh, but, uh, yeah, machine gun, uh, I could have chosen others, but I think machine gun is, is my favorite. Um, there's this kind of onomatopoeia element and the way the, and the imitation of war sounds and weaponry, that's really cool. And, uh, you know, and I think at like at the four minute mark, there's this where he starts the solo. There's just this long shriek, uh, the, this extended note that he just pulls out. Um, and he's using, he's using the univibe, uh, on this recording. And it's, uh, has that kind of Leslie, uh, pulsating sound. It's just amazing. Um, um, but it also, I don't know, it's, I find it so difficult to describe his music because it's not, it's not just guitar playing, you know, it's, 
it's uh it's it's something it's something more than that and it always feels like a a kind of geological event like a volcano exploding or <laughs> or uh you know a uh, an earthquake or something it's 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 just it's just beyond but uh I, you know and the, so he pulls out this note and then it's just like the guitar just at the beginning of the solo the guitar just decouples from the rhythm section and it's just he just creates this amazing abstract it's a sculpt i mean it's really you have to think about it in 3d terms it's just like it's it's a sculpture on top of the beat um you know it's like i love cream's version of crossroads which is also a power trio but it's it's very different you know clapton is just playing the guitar and this is this is something uh this is something entirely different. It's just on a, on a completely different level. <clears throat> so, I mean, I was saying part of this, the effects pedals and the Univide, but um, it's interesting for me because I don't like guitar pedals. I don't ever use guitar pedals. And I, I typically don't like hearing other players use <laughs> guitar pedals. Um, and I, you know, I hate when I see like an effects board. Uh, I have an irrational uh, aversion to them. They just um, there's there's something if they look so industrialized and uh, uh, and seeing like uh, I don't know. There's a great photo of Hendrix that has where he's just it's kind of a photo of him with his back to the audience and the camera's up high and you can see his little effects chain at his feet and it's there's no effects board or anything. It's just some like a wah-wah and maybe a fuzz or something uh, with the curly cords plugged into them. And, you know, <laughs> that's, I mean, Hendrix is the only person I want to see use effects. You know, he actually like, you know, most players, they step on it and then whoever the person was who was playing kind of disappears. And with Hendrix, he's actually playing the effects. You know, he's experimenting with the whole signal chain. And it's not just something that he's passively passing signal through, you know, he's actually pushing the thing and, and getting something out of it that he's actively controlling or attempting to control. Um, and for me, that's, I don't know, that's just another piece of what I find, uh, you know, so amazing about his guitar playing. Uh, and then the other thing I was thinking is that, uh, the way he uses the way he'll double uh, his voice with the guitar and he'll play the vocal line um, uh, while he's also singing. And this is something that I do from time to time. And I think it's, it's a really fun thing for me to do. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I got it from Hendrix or if I just sort of stumbled onto it myself, but I, I'd love this, this way of, of you're playing some notes and then you're also singing those notes or attempting to sing those notes. And for me, I don't use a mic in front of my voice. So I'm kind of yelling, you know, to get my voice up loud enough to be heard over a guitar amp. Um, and it creates a, a really weird effect, especially since people don't necessarily can tell initially where the sound's coming from or what it is. And, uh, and the kind of human element blending in is kind of either disconcerting or some people like it. I don't know. But it's, it's always fun for me to do. 
But uh, and then I, I, I love the way the song ends. You know, there's a, the last couple of minutes, uh, the drums sort of drop out and there's a lot of Hendrix just doing a lot of quietly controlled feedback and uh, some some beautiful little runs and stuff while the uh, the drums, the drums kind of drop out, but they're, they're playing some little stuff on the on the on the snare and the hi-hat. But uh, yeah, it's just a great, uh, amazing track for me. You know, I've always uh, wondered about this, and you you bring it up, so I'm going to ask about it. Uh, sort of vocalizing along with an instrument, which is something that I mean, you know, having seen you play live, it's like you're 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 doing that on purpose, or you're letting it happen. Uh, and there are other musicians I can think of who sort of make a feature out of that. Like I don't know, I don't know if you know who Oteil Burbridge is, but he's a bass player and he does that a lot. Um, but then you have people like Glenn Gould or, or a few other uh, musicians who do it, but don't seem to be able to help it. It's like something they just do. And I've always been curious about the sort of where the line is between doing it on purpose or for effect. And then people who just, it's like a part of their brain, they can't turn off. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, I've thought about that a lot actually too, because it, it's some of it is involuntary for me and then and i'll not be aware that i'm doing it uh and then also as i've, as I've since I, as i've been playing live i realized that it's going to happen and uh i'll just sort of uh let it happen <laughs> you know what i mean i've never tried to stop it from happening so i, I don't know that i could turn it off uh so i kind of indulge it when i when the when the the feeling comes over me that I need to do it. Um, and I, I've, I've come to kind of think it sounds cool. Uh, but yeah, that's a, it's a good question as, as to like with an involuntary behavior like that, um, you know, how much of it is controlled and how much, how much is spontaneous and how much is, you know, planned. Uh, and for me, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not entirely, uh, I guess it's entirely spontaneous, but it's it's something that I choose to to turn up to try not to stop. Maybe you know I could you know keep it bottled up if I had to. I don't actually play music, so that's another reason I'm fascinated by this. I mean, is it, does it help somehow? Uh, it feels good. <laughs> uh, that's for sure. Uh, it feels good to to vocalize. You know, and I love the way it sounds, and uh, and I've seen <laughs> sometimes if I'm in a duo or something, I'll, I'll I'll just watch my duo partner and see if I can freak them out by you know with my voice, um, and that's always fun just to see if I can get a good reaction out of them. But uh, it does it does help, I think so. You, you talked about sort of a little bit about the period of time when you would have uh, heard this. And I'm wondering if you could um, talk a little bit more about the chronology. You know, had you, were you already playing guitar when you were, you know, uh, a teenager? Had you, had you heard this before or is this something you came to after you started uh, learning? That's a good question. Um, I, I was the oldest of three kids. My parents didn't have any records, I want to say. I don't think that my parents owned any records. 
Um, although I think they had one of those big console stereos that had like a radio and probably a turntable as well in it. But for whatever reason, not because I asked for it, but um, when I turned about 15 for my birthday or Christmas, my parents got me uh, a turntable, like a fancy actually turntable and amplifier and speakers uh, that I could put in my room. And uh, I hadn't really had any interest in music and I didn't have any older siblings. So I didn't, I didn't really have anybody to emulate or who I thought, you know, you know there was nobody, there were no records in the house and nobody was really listening to music in the house. So I kind of had to do all that on my own. Um, and uh, my, my I'm trying to think, did I have any friends? Yeah, I had a few, I had a few friends, but I made when once I got into music, I started to make like music friends uh, who also were buying records and exploring stuff. And I was you know pretty bookish, so I would uh, just really just read reviews a lot in uh, in uh, like Rolling Stone and Cream and so forth. And then you know, and then in the library, I would start start digging a little bit deeper but that was where i heard hendrix in that mix must have been very early you know i started pretty quickly into the blues uh since my first real guitar was a strat i'm i'm fairly certain that i that uh probably around the first time i heard hendrix i just started to get playing guitar and i had my first my very first guitar I bought from my next door neighbor for like $50, kind of a Japanese copy of a Strat. And, uh, and then by the time I could afford a real guitar, I was already pretty far down the road of, uh, you know, listening to, to Machine Gun and uh, the like of it. The second piece of music Orcutt chose as essential to forming his sensibilities was Do It Again by Judy Garland. You really shouldn't have done it. You hadn't any right. I really shouldn't have let you kiss me. And although it was wrong, I never So as long as you've begun it And you know you shouldn't have done it So, I mean, I came to Judy Garland uh, as a kid, you know, obviously, uh, through The Wizard of Oz. And this is would have been the 1960s, um, before video stores or streaming or whatever. Um, so you would see it like once a year on, uh, on, uh, on Thanksgiving, <laughs> at least in Miami where I grew up. Uh, 
And uh, so I would see it once a year, and it just had a, like a tremendous impact on me. Um, and she's, you know, I don't know what to say about that movie. I mean, she's so great in it, and the story is so amazing. And, and now that I've had kids, I've had a chance to show it to them, and you can just see that whatever it is that's going on in that movie just seems to work really well um, for kids. Um, and then when I was, you know, in elementary school, I played the Tin Man <laughs> in an elementary school production. And, uh, you know, and Over the Rainbow was always just a very big song for me. And I, I play it on, on some, one or one or at least one of my records. Um, and that's, that's uh, just a connection that goes all the way back. Um, then I later... <clears throat> I started working on this um, this box set of 25 songs that were all going to be cover versions of other people's songs. And it ultimately became an LP uh, called The History of Everyone. Um, and so I was looking kind of through the American songbook and trying to find what I was thinking of as canonical versions of these songs, kind of like they would exist outside of somebody's particular interpretation, but sort of like very straight standard uh versions of the songs and i realized after poking around for a while i just realized this is a this is a completely wrong way to think about it you know there are no standard versions of these songs everything is an interpretation uh and once i stopped looking for you know uninflected standard versions i, I just dove straight into into judy garland uh and to a little, to a lesser extent, Frank Sinatra, but but mostly Judy Garland, um, and you know, uh, it was great. <laughs> uh, there, I, and I, I I acquired most of her records as part of that process, but I think that this the Carnegie Hall one, uh, probably as a as an end to end listening experience is is my favorite, um, and. Uh, you know, there are others. There are other good records. I, I did a version of her. She does a version of this Cole Porter song. I happen to like New York, that I uh, did on on the the twenty five song box set, and that's good. But uh, it's you know the Judy at Carnegie Hall, uh, for many reasons is is just it's not perfect. It's her voice is kind of going at various points in the record, but it's. Uh, as from start to finish, I find it the most enjoyable. Uh, so the song itself, it's like, I love how, I love the minimal arrangement, you know, uh, there's a lot of sort of gaudy, uh, material on that, uh, uh, record, including like the, like late, right after the song ends, there's like a mambo version of, uh, uh, something or other and it's like it's so it's just like a jarring contrast but that song has this incredible arrangement and i i know and i love a big broadway finish to a song but this this has a a really subdued uh reading from from beginning to end you know and it's so slow um uh it, it's interesting to me how slow it is uh you know, there's a lot of her catalog that feels kind of dated uh, because of the arrangements and stuff. But this song to me just feels so completely contemporary. Um, and 
and the, and the reading is just so restrained and her voice sounds so, so beautiful. Um, uh, it's just, it's my favorite track on that record. It may probably, you know, one of my favorite recordings by her. Um, I really love the, the kind of imperfections in, in her singing and she's, it's a live record, so she's too close to the mic sometimes, and you get this kind of a uh, little bit of distortion and proximity effect happening. And uh, but it, it just makes the record; it just makes it sound that much more real. Um, and uh, again, it's just the vulnerability, and I I love. I feel like that's really important for me to to remember to to just be open on stage and you know just be somebody that you know that's just in the moment and just doing whatever whatever it is that you know I came to do and not uh not necessarily to hold back or worry about you know what I look like or or any other reason to you know I came to play I came to say whatever it was that I've been walking around <laughs> with inside of me. And uh, I just want to be that person on stage, you know, and just, uh, and just do that thing and, uh, and not worry about, uh, you know, whether or not I look like a jerk. So for whatever reason, Judy Garland helps me do that. <laughs> and that's important. Uh, but uh about this record i mean i just uh, one last thing is i really love the the banter you know and it's it's i love that they left in all the the audience interactions and i right, actually actually when this song ends she gets up and she's like oh i've got a, a frog in my throat i have to go get a glass of water and then there's like a like a three minute pause while she <laughs> goes off mic to go find some water the audience is yelling out stuff and I don't know. It's just, it's that. And also her diction when she's singing, it's like sometimes she has that kind of voice that performers from that era had, um, that way of pronouncing words that sort of sounds, it's, I don't know what you would, how you describe it, but it's a certain like sort of thirties, forties way of talking that they must've taught at some school. Uh, and then sometimes she'll go, she'll kind of slide out of that diction into and, and to a, I don't know what to call it, like a, a more natural, more street <laughs> way of, of pronouncing words. I don't know. I love that. So I like the diction. I love the banter. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I love the songs. So, and Do It Again is my favorite one off of, the, off of this LP. When you're, you know, you talked about sort of coming on this while researching um, songs to, to cover and, you know, as, as much as you do, you know, sort of or, original music and, you know, your sound is very distinctive, you know, you have, it seems to me at least started doing more covers and playing other people's music more in, in the last few years. What is that when you're trying to, when you take a melody or, or a song and you're sort of trying to, you know, quote unquote, make it your own, what is that process like? How does that work? Usually I just start with like a, a fake book, you know, uh, uh, usually that just has the vocal melody and I'll learn to play it. Just the vocal melody from, uh, from looking at that, you know, just a basic, uh, uh, kind of the bare bones 
skeleton of the song. And then I'll start working out, uh, like harmonizing it, um, and figuring out what, you know, what else I can, how I can accompany this, this melody or how I can arrange it or how I can bury it sometimes, you know, inside other chords. Um, how I might, you know, cause it's both, it's both finding a way to support the melody, but then sometimes I might also want to obscure the melody. I don't always do songs that I like. Um, <laughs> you know, sometimes I do songs that I dislike. Um, so it's both. So sometimes it might be a question of finding the most beautiful way to play it or that I can play it or finding, uh, you know, the best way to destroy it. Um, so yeah, so I'll, I'll, you know, and then there are also rhythmic things that I like to do and I'll, and certain, certain points in the melody might lend themselves to inserting those kinds of, that kind of rhythmic stuff. Uh, and I'll just keep playing it. And, uh, what I find is that they don't, you're never really done, you know, at some point you record it, but like with a lot of these things that I've been playing live for, you know, for over five years now, um, they keep changing. And sometimes they kind of intersect because uh, certain songs will resemble each other or they'll have like the same chord change, uh, you know, the same interval or something, and they'll start to uh, blend together. And I might like let them blend together or let them overlap. I don't know. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, a, it's an iterative process. So uh, it's, it's never really done. I'm curious, what's the song that you, you play that you hate? Oh, <laughs> you have to, you'd have to go through my catalog, uh, and, uh, and take a look at that. But, uh, you know, I do a lot of, uh, you know, cause I've done songs from the entire history of, you know, the American songbook. So I do a song, uh, that was like, a uh, done in minstrel shows called masses in the cold, cold ground. Um, that's, uh, it's, it's a Stephen Foster, you know, camp town races, uh, song. And, uh, he does, uh, it's about, it's the narrow or the, it's written from the point of view of a slave who is lamenting the death of his master. So that would be an example of a song that, that I don't like, but I feel is important to, to tell it's part, it's part of the story that I'm trying to tell. You know, you, 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 uh, have, uh, done a cover, I guess, I don't know, cover seems like the wrong word of the national anthem. And, you know, in fact, I think I've even seen a video on YouTube of you like filmed playing it. And, you know, I, it's hard to think of a more iconic piece of music, at least in America. Um, what, why did you start playing that? And, and what do you sort of think about when you're playing it? You know, uh, that was actually the first one I did. I kind of haven't gotten to, I got to the point where in playing my own music where I felt like I had developed a, a kind of language. And then I was like, well, I have this language and I wonder if I can translate other things into my language. Um, and so I thought, well, what's, you know, where do you start? <laughs> You know, and I didn't want to, do, you know, what was I going to do? I wasn't going to do like a Neil Young song, you know? So I was like, I wanted to do something. I wanted to bite off a little bigger 
you know, piece of the matzo ball than, you know, something just like a rock song. So it seemed like a, it seemed like a, a good place to start if you were going to try and especially, I guess I was at that point, I was already thinking that I was interested in the American songbook, uh, you know, and all it's, you know, and the good, bad and the ugly of it. And, uh, and so I was going to like try to find a good place to begin with. And so that seemed like a, that seemed like a good starting point. Uh, in terms of what I'm thinking about when I'm playing it, to be honest, mostly I'm just trying to not, to not forget <laughs> how it goes. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, I was, I wasn't, obviously I wasn't trying to do, uh, a patriotic version, I suppose, you know, um, but I was, you know, I wanted to translate it into my vernacular and, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, I guess it's a critical version. Beyond Video is a volunteer-run video library in Baltimore. Basically, an old-school video rental store reimagined with a 21st-century nonprofit twist. Beyond offers nearly 30,000 titles from every region, era, and genre of cinema on DVD, Blu-ray, and VHS. A collection put together by crowdsourcing disc donations from movie lovers like you. With no rental fees or late fees, members get unlimited rentals from the collection for a small monthly donation. Find out more about joining or donating at beyondvideo.org, or when in Baltimore, visit Beyond at 2545 North Howard Street. And for a limited time, new members who mention Essential Tremors when signing up will get an extra month for free. You're listening to Essential Tremors. After the break, we'll hear more about our guests' essential songs. The final piece of music Orcutt chose as being crucial to him was Conk Ain't Got No Bone by Joseph Spence. Let's get out of party Sun fight venter I Um, uh, similar to the Judy Garland, uh, it was, came, it came out of like research, uh, when I just was starting to play solo acoustic and I was, so I started listening to as many solo acoustic guitar, uh, uh, players as I could. And I was aware of Joseph Spence, but I had never really, you know, dug in. And, uh, when I got to his music, I was just like, there's something here that, you know, in, in my own way is meaningful for me, you know, and it's, uh, that particular track, uh, and in all this music, there's just this, it's, there's a density 
that I love. There's part of my brain. I mean, I like slow, minimal things, but then I also, with my own music, I like a lot of density and a lot of energy. Um, and and his 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 the way his way of playing guitar has that. Um, I like the idea that he his vocalizations. I find you know, is he singing or is <laughs> is it voluntary? Is it involuntary? Is he singing or is he just you know grunting along with the music? You can't quite work it out. Uh, and I, and it feels very private. You know what I mean. Even these, some of these records, I think this record is a live performance, but you couldn't necessarily tell it. It could, it could have been recorded, you know, in his bedroom by himself. You know what I mean? It doesn't necessarily feel like a performance. It just kind of feels like you're eavesdropping on someone, you know, doing something uh, on their own. And, you know, that was also really appealing to me, the idea of having a private language that that you just kind of created or talking to yourself with um and uh again i mean my take on joseph spence is probably going to be very different from you know a musicologist or a folklorist who's you know collecting these songs but uh i just i just kind of know what they mean for me and what i am able to get out of them from listening to them but uh, i love this idea of inventing your own technique uh, I know that like when I was playing with, with Harry Pussy, I was playing, uh, with my wife, Adria Soyos. And, you know, we started when we started the band, she didn't play the drums at all. She had never played the drums. Uh, and when we recorded our first song, she, that was her first time behind the drum kit. And, uh, we played, we play, cause I, I was working at a movie theater and we would, so every night after the, the late show, we would rehearse and so she and we started touring and playing and making records and so she you know for five years or however long we were together we we would play every night so she had played every day for five years and at the end of that process she still couldn't play the drum and she couldn't do a roll you know she couldn't do like a basic drum technique but she had developed this amazing uh drum technique and you want to call it a language completely on her own you know uh that i I, i've never you nobody could could copy it i don't think um it didn't you know it's not something you could teach to anyone and uh but uh i and i thought that was just fantastic and if it it can completely force me to reevaluate the way i was playing guitar um to start to go back to zero and try to you know uh invent something you know, from scratch. So again, I don't know what this has to do with Joseph Spence, but, uh, that's what it makes me think of. Um, uh, I also love like, uh, and again, I, I, again, it makes me think of involuntary versus voluntary. And for me, uh, you were talking about Glenn Gould. That's, that's one reference. I also, I have to think of, uh, Robert Ashley's automatic writing, you know, and recording involuntary speech. Um, uh, I think that's, that's some kind of a touchstone for me also. And, uh, and, you know, the other thing that I was looking at uh, around this time when I was starting to play solo was uh, 
um, people on YouTube who were documenting documenting their involuntary behaviors. Uh, there was this, in particular, there's this one woman called who called herself Tictionary. Uh, her account's gone, but uh, she, you know, had various compulsive behaviors, and she would look at, you know, I don't know, a desktop and. She would see on the desktop patches of tension, what she called described as patches of tension that she had to touch in order to release the tension. And, uh, and I was just thought this is amazing because it's music, right? This is tension and release. Uh, it's a completely musical concept, you know, but it's, unre- <laughs> uh, it's unrelated to music. There's no sound. Uh, and I was thinking, you know, what if this is, you know, what if Cecil, the root of Cecil Taylor's playing was, you know, seeing patches of tension on his keyboard, you know, or what if playing the guitar, you, you know, instead of looking at chord structure, you were looking for patches of tension to release. So, um, you know, I had a lot of different ideas feeding into my music at the time that we were, that I was starting to play uh, solo and uh, just spent was just kind of a, a referent for me. Um, I didn't really want to learn how to play like him, but uh, there was something about his music that was that was very inspiring. Um, I'm curious. You know, you you were in a uh, a band that was, you know, if not famous, exactly, you know, sort of well known in certain circles. And then I, I gather you stopped playing music for a while. And and you know, I've certainly sort of read mention of you and you talked about a little bit of, you know, coming back to playing and playing solo and, and building up what you wanted to do. Um, why, why did, why did you do that? Why did that happen? Could you talk a little bit about the root of that? Um, the, well, I could talk about it. Um, I started playing, you know, I played with Adris for five or six years, and then uh, we stopped. And I, you know, I very quick soon after we, she, uh, we got divorced. She moved away to England, and I moved to San Francisco, probably all in the same year. Um. And so I, you know, I really felt like I had done what I wanted to do uh, as a musician. I was like, I didn't, I really just didn't want to be like a guitar player in somebody else's band. Uh, I felt like, you know, I had done something really, uh, you know, weird in the best possible way. And I didn't want to just then, you know, be in somebody's noise rock band or whatever. Uh, it felt like, I, and I was happy with that. And I was like, and uh, I moved out here and I was working a lot. You know, I'm a software engineer and this was like during the dot-com boom. And so I was, there was plenty of work and I was busy all the time. And uh, I got married, I had kids and uh you know, kind of like, uh, 10 years plus went by pretty quickly. Uh, and the band really faded, uh, for me. Uh, I didn't, 
it was kind of shocking later when I started playing again, realizing how much I had forgotten about the whole experience and, you know, the names of people who had kind of slipped away <clears throat> from me even. Uh, but somebody, I mean, you know, from time to time, people would contact me, you know, do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? And uh, various offers. And I had uh, somebody offered to, to do a record um, of the band's music. And I was like, sure. Uh, you know, we, there, was a, there was a group of records that had only come out on vinyl and uh, in the 90s. And I thought we could do a, you know, a CD compiling them and uh that became this this uh, cd called uh you'll never play this town again which is like the the last group of records we did and um the act of compiling those records made me listen to that music again for the first time in a really you know in a really long time and uh because i had forgotten it so thoroughly <laughs> Uh, I was, I was really, it, it really hit me, you know, with some force, um, and, uh, I, I, I got excited, uh, you know, it, uh, I was like, wow, this is amazing. And, uh, uh, it just made me get out the guitar, you know, and string it up, uh, and, uh, and start playing again. And, uh, it just kind of snowballed. You know, and I played for about a year uh, between 2008 and 2009, um, and uh, and I felt like I could, I had something going on. You know, just playing solo acoustic guitar, and uh, I could record it, and I did. And uh, and the response to the the first record was really was really good. This has been Essential Tremors. Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner. Essential Tremors is distributed by WYPR Baltimore. For more information about Essential Tremors, go to EssentialPodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Hey.